Welcome to the podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, about election security and the fate of democracy in the 21st century. This is episode 13, What Do Voters Want? I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum. Today, I am joined by Lauren Collingwood. Lauren is Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Riverside. He researches and teaches on voting behavior in the US, race and ethnic politics, immigration, and research methodology, particularly focused on public opinion surveys. He has written numerous journal articles and two books, Campaigning in a Racially Diversifying America, When and How Cross-Racial Electoral Mobilization Works, and Sanctuary Cities, The Politics of Refuge, co-authored with Benjamin Gonzalez O'Brien. I wanted Lauren here to help us unpack what we know about the American electorate that turned out in 2020 and what key factors swung the election in Joe Biden's favor. Hi, Lauren, how are you? How are you doing? Good, so first, just a kind of a newsworthy item, I guess, it looks like Joe Biden is perhaps on his way to win uh, 306 electoral votes. He's passed the 270 threshold, but the president has yet to concede. So what do you make of that? Well, the first hand is it's obvious that uh, uh, Joe Biden is going to win this election. Uh, he's going to win. Georgia's going to flip it. That's a, a massive win right there. I've been looking at all the uh, close states. It, it looks like a, a clear victory. So it's not surprising Trump um, is doing what he's doing right now, which is stalling and trying to take it to court. It's a pretty typical Trump move, uh, given everything that we know of him. So all of us, including you, would predict something like this going in. And this is what's happening. Yeah, well, what I predicted was that Trump needed a very clear off-ramp, kind of a a legal and perhaps psychological off-ramp. And I think we're sort of seeing the Republican Party trying to construct what that might look like, but it it doesn't seem yet clear what exactly that is, because there are certain laws that will take effect. I mean, the president, a sitting president doesn't decide who won the election. Um, So what do you see sort of in terms of the maneuvering around the president among his advisors and the Republican Party in terms of how they're trying to construct what this off-ramp might be? Well, the off-ramp seems to be a uh, Four Seasons landscaping uh, venue between an adult bookstore and a crematorium in Pennsylvania and in Philadelphia, and that completely backfired, really. And and it's quite hysterical, but, but you know, in all seriousness, they're trying to challenge uh, voting in, in different areas and, uh, you know, mainly cities and blaming cities. And right now, the only offer it seems to be is, is keep your base believing uh, basically these lies. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's true. And I think people discount the degree to which that might actually be effective. I mean, Fox News, when I've watched it, has seemed to be sort of teetering between kind of admitting the obvious at the same time as in the primetime hours, having guests on that are giving hope to the Republicans that there, there is a legal challenge ahead that they could actually win. Yeah, I mean, the things for me to look for, are when are people like McConnell and other Republican leaders, when are we going to start seeing an acknowledgement that Biden is the next president, right? And that's what I'm looking for right now. Do you think it'll happen soon? Yeah, I think so, but you know, I don't know for sure. So, so Lauren, I wanted to have you on to talk about voting behavior and kind of how we understand what happened in the election and why Biden won. And I always think this is a difficult conversation to have for kind of, I've I've identified three reasons and you may disagree with the premise of this question, but the first thing is that there's the explanation for kind of the overall what happened in this election, which is that Joe Biden won. Um, And that may or may not be a different explanation or require a different set of explanatory variables than 
you know, why did Biden win by slim, you know, slim to somewhat healthy margins in a number of key states, which might be also different than kind of explaining, well, why did 70 million people still vote for a, a president who is deeply unpopular? And I think when we talk about voting behavior, we're always sort of not clear exactly what we're trying to explain with the electorate. And that gets very confusing then, because it's sort of like the, the the country you're trying to explain where Biden won is still the country that uh, Trump got a lot of votes in. It's just that what you may be trying to explain is a narrower margin than the overall phenomenon of a Biden or Trump victory. Yeah, I mean, those are a great set of questions. I mean, one one thing for me, looking at this high turnout, I know we had talked a little bit earlier, it, it, and I haven't done analysis fully on this yet, but it seems like the mail-in ballot absentee voting uh, strategy was really quite effective for Democrats. And so, you know, you're seeing these, and, and, and research shows that different states that have uh, vote by mail tend to have higher turnout. Now, there could be an indigeneity issue there, but still uh, places like Washington, Oregon have extremely high turnout, right? And they're all male states. And so it just makes it, I mean, as someone who votes by mail myself, it's just it's a much easier process. And I think that might be one explanation. Uh, the, the country's as polarized as ever, and it's really about who gets out more people and, and in a method that's a little bit easier uh, in voting by mail than in person, especially during a coronavirus. That could be a, an important question. I think a lot of people are going to be looking at that. So one, I mean, a few months ago, I think everybody was reasonably worried about the, the turnout question overall, both in terms of the ability to conduct mail-in mail uh, voting at scale, but also just for the people that wanted to vote in person with the effects of the coronavirus. Yeah, we had more voters in this election than we've ever had, and it looks like we're about to hit a rate of voting that is unprecedented, like at least in the last 100 years. So what do you you know, why, why do people waste their time voting? I mean, why spend all this time like waiting in the mail to get your ballot? Why go out on election day? I mean, I know we say it's a good thing to do, but why do people actually spend that amount of time and why would they do it with these enormous challenges? Well, you know, the, you know, the, a lot of the old school research going back and really looks at, uh, you know, beginning with Anthony Downs is uh, famous. He's an economist back in the forties, fifties writing one of the initial, um, uh, claims was that voting just doesn't make sense. Uh, just that your actual probability of swinging the election as a one voter is low. And then what a lot of people looked at was really things like civic duty. Uh, and then there's a great book out recently by uh, Cheryl Laird and Ishmael White looking at black Democrats and uh, why they are consistently uh, democratic. And, and you know one reason is this sense of uh, uh, importance to the group, right? You're, you're kind of voting for your own group and trying to promote your group's interests, in this case, black, uh, black people in the United States. And so there's a lot of group-based analysis that's been going on uh, in the last decade or so, and that's a major factor for voting behavior. Do you think, do you believe this explanation that the attempts at voter suppression, particularly in states like Georgia, where, you know, within recent memory and today, African-Americans have had to fight for the right to vote, that that may have actually backfired and mobilized people to turn out in much higher numbers than they otherwise would have. That's a really great, uh, great point. I think there's, there's some evidence for that. So I, I, I would say a tentative, that's probably true. A colleague of mine at UC Riverside, Dan Biggers, has written a paper in uh, the British Journal of Political Science in the last couple of years where he did um, experimental, uh, ex big ex field experiments reminding black voters uh, about um, that uh, basically the state is trying to take their vote away effectively. And in an experimental context, he's showing that there's a, the probability of them voting, actual voting is, is higher uh, in some context. And so it does seem like that is a place like Georgia with a history of vote suppression for uh, black voters there. That's a pretty good explanation uh, there for increased turnout. And if, 
we're, you know, we're going to get the final numbers once. I guess California is always kind of the big vote bank of ballots that take a long time to be counted. But it does look like we're probably over 150 million total voters. Would you, do you, would you characterize or do you think the data suggests right now that the mobilization for both parties was really about a solid support for their candidate or was it kind of a, ne a negative vote against the other side or is it too hard to distinguish those two? Uh, well, when I was looking at the exit polls on this one uh, early on, uh, you know, this was maybe last week I was looking at that. Um, it does seem to be more of a referendum on Trump. So on the one hand, you have uh, Trump voters, people voting for Trump in general. He has a core part of his base that absolutely, you know, is almost uh, messianic about him. Right. Um, that's not so much the case for Biden. So, for example, 24 percent of voters uh, say they voted against an opponent. And of these people, 68% are voting for Biden, right? Uh, and so it's clearly the case that Biden voters, they're getting out there not as much for Biden, although some still obviously like him, but many of them are going because they just can't stand Trump. Is that the best mobilizing? You know, what does that say about mobilization moving forward for the Democratic Party? If Trump is no longer kind of the boogeyman that they're mobilized or not against, does that do you think that portends low turnout for the midterms in 2022, or does that require them to think about generating more excitement on their own side? Uh, definitely the latter. Um, usually off-year off elections, the incumbent party, so usually the party with the presidency here, uh, is going to lose, lose uh, seats. So it's likely, likely the case that Republicans come back, hold the Senate, and win the House, uh, unless... If, if Biden does an excellent job, you know, when we're looking at perspective voting, Biden does an excellent job, gets coronavirus under control, whether it's him doing it or just good luck with the vaccines coming out, um, then I think maybe they run on that and they run on hope and continued what we were doing uh, uh, the last two years. And then they might have a shot to, to maintain the House and potentially, you know, we'll see what happens with the Senate. Do you account some, there's been some discussion that the polls were maybe a little bit off again in underestimating how much support Trump may have had in the electorate, perhaps some shy Trump voters who said they were going to vote for Biden in the polls, or perhaps the inability to correctly wait who was likely to turn out. Do you think the actual numbers that we saw in terms of who turned out are suggestive of some shy, quote unquote, shy Trump voters or, or voters that were likely to turn out that were just missed by pollsters? I think the biggest issue here, so first of all, and I know we had discussed this a little bit earlier, um, the two states that uh, based on real clear politics average and the actual election results that to me are very off are Ohio and Wisconsin. The other states seem to have a pro-democratic bias in terms of the polling averages. And so that obviously needs to be looked into. Um, my theory is that a lot of this is due to, um, you know, you have increasing number of online pollsters that are not so reputable that are using panels. It's not probability-based sampling. And uh, just given the crunch of having to do this analysis quickly, um, pollsters are often not collecting the requisite uh, uh, sample people in their samples and they're weighting their data up. And they're probably systematically missing people in rural areas that are overwhelmingly now going, in, in most rural counties, overwhelmingly going for uh, Republicans and Trump. So I think these are some of the things that people are gonna look into this for sure. So what do we make of the kind of new battleground map? I think, you know, obviously the Biden campaign went in worried about that northern blue wall of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. They seem to have pulled that off, although all three states were fairly close, uh, Michigan not, not as much. 
But now, I mean, Texas, Arizona, Georgia, uh, North Carolina, uh, the, these being kind of the, the swing states in this election, they've been trending in this direction. What do you what do you make of that? I think broadly speaking, there has been a movement of um, uh, of people into into these areas, right? They're cheaper to live in. And so if you're living in California, even Seattle, West Coast, Northeast, it, it, a lot of younger people are, are priced out. Um, there has been somewhat of a reverse exodus of uh, uh, of the black population moving back down into places like Georgia, Atlanta in particular, uh, and places like Texas as well. And then also some of these states have a rising Latino population that uh, is disproportionately democratic. And so you put all this together uh, in a place like Virginia that's no longer discussed, but you put all this together and these places are very competitive now. What do you make of the turnout game in a, in a state like Georgia with the efforts of Stacey Abrams over the last few years? Do you think that really is what made the difference? I think it's a combination of uh, one individual, Stacey Abrams, and what she's been able to accomplish. I mean, we haven't seen this kind of uh, registration push in a long time. Uh, there's historical precedent for that, but uh, she's kind of bringing back the old school, get them, get them going on the ground kind of thing. Uh, but at the same time, there's state laws that really matter in terms of increasing, like you go to get your, your go to the DMV or Department of Motor Vehicles to get uh, an ID. And those state laws are also uh, just automatically signing you up. And so that's just taking one, um, one less impediment to voting off the table. So these things can matter as well, in addition to hardcore uh, ground mobilization, what you saw in Georgia. So I wanted to talk about who voted for whom and for what reasons. And, and since you're a scholar and have expertise in race and ethnic politics and immigration, I thought I would start by the racial breakdown. It seems like we've had a couple interesting things appear that have already captured some narratives. One is that the I'm going to put air quotes around Latino, however you wanted to, to uh, define that, but people of Latin American descent in the United States, the degree to which some of those voters swung a little bit more to Trump um, versus where they were at before and what you make of that. And um, is that surprising? So we have to be um, very cautious early on. I was listening to the daily this morning with Nate Cohn. He was kind of making some of these same arguments, but we do have to be very cautious specifically when it comes to understanding racial minority voters, because they are still a relative subset of the population can be small. And especially when we're breaking it down to the subgroup level within those groups. Right. And those studies will begin to emerge. Um, but when it comes to the uh, Latino vote in particular, one of the main stories that comes about is the South Florida. We were all watching right early on or, uh, re, you know, following the election returns in South Florida, we saw a, a large swing in the vote from Clinton uh, away from Clinton, uh, sorry, from Clinton away from Biden to Trump. And most likely that's the case because of the, you know, the, the Cuban vote down there, Cuban American vote swung more Republican. Uh, but that's not surprising And the Cuban vote makes about three per 4% of the overall Hispanic or Latino vote in the United States. So, uh, and that fits with, with history. So that's one analysis and, you know, we can continue looking at other, uh, other places, other cities, but we really need to get more kind of precinct data looking at that. Well, just sticking with the Cuban-American vote right now, I know that even though the Cuban-Americans are, are unlike some other um, <clears throat> Latino or Hispanic groups in the United States, they have been more solidly Republican, although Democrats have always tried to make a play for the Cuban-American vote, particularly in Miami-Dade, and then it kind of swung away from them. But if you read the coverage of the campaign leading up to Election Day, it seems like in Spanish language radio, 
you know, all sorts of nasty things were being said about the Biden campaign and, and the Biden campaign wasn't really down there countering that, particularly around this idea of the Democrats being socialists and yeah, socialism no as being a buzzword if you're of Cuban descent. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, uh, Latinos who, uh, they're, they're, you know, their families uh, migrate from, uh, you know, post-communist type countries. Uh, Venezuela is another classic example, right, where, uh, and you have uh, Vietnamese also um, coming over under, you know, issues of uh, uh, unrest. Often people coming from countries that have this kind of historical background are going to be more staunch Republican, uh, just going back historically with Reagan and stuff like that being hardcore anti-communist. And so that it seems, although we haven't done studies yet on this, I haven't seen experimental evidence or anything like that, but it seems that this appeal on socialism saying the Democrats are basically socialists uh, could have been effective with some of the, the Cuban voters uh, down in South Florida. Do you think, do you buy this idea that Florida really is about is a battleground state or do you think Florida is really just a red state and Democrats always just kind of get their hope up and are disappointed? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does seem like we're uh, the Democratic Party is always losing that one, although, of course, Obama won it. Um, no, I still buy it. It's, it's a battleground state. What I tend to do is look at, OK, what was the you know, was the state within five to six points of the last election? Florida still was within that. Um, and it, it's a it's a very hard to pinpoint Florida because there is always a lot of demographic change occurring in Florida. Uh, but again, you can never forget that Florida does have that. Uh, a big portion of it does have that deep South roots. You know, I did a lot of research in Florida for my, uh, my first book um, and my dissertation, right? So I spent a lot of time analyzing those counties and many of them look no different than Alabama, Georgia and, and, and areas like that. So I still think it's important for Democrats to, to contend Florida because it's got so many electoral votes, but it is, uh, it's a challenge and probably it's one of the battleground states where you're going to now as a democrat you would expect you're probably going to lose but only win in a real wave election okay now how about the latino vote or the mexican-american vote in southern texas and the rio grande valley it seems like there's a swing towards trump there as well what do you make of that i mean first of all is that accurate and what do you make of that yeah that's definitely accurate um okay so when you're thinking about the the latino vote and all the data i've been looking at um, in places like Dallas County, uh, uh, Harris County, which is Houston, and um, other areas in Texas and other places around the United States, you're, you're looking at probably a 70 to 75, 78% uh, uh, net gain for Democrats among Latino voters. But in South Texas, that's just not the case. You're seeing one county, for example, Star County, which is on the border, we're looking like a 60, 60 point swing, 70 point swing, something like this from Clinton uh, you know, in terms of the net differential from, from Clinton to Biden and, and towards Trump. And I have a, some hypotheses here, and, and, and we were working on getting the precinct data to begin to evaluate this. But it seems to me, you know, the push on uh, child detention and immigration, uh, a lot of people may not really realize this, but a lot of the people along the border, I mean, we're talking 90% plus Mexican-American uh, residents. Those are also the people that are working in these detention centers and that are getting lambasted from the broader kind of uh, media environment. So it's possible that a vote, a swing towards Trump in these very specific counties could have been an economic kings of all, of, all, of, of all issues, an economic anxiety vote here where people are legitimately concerned about um, private detention centers and, and private prisons getting basically run out of town and that these, they'll lose their job. So it's a really, uh, and David Cortez at uh, Notre Dame has a, very, a lot of very interesting one-on-one -on -one in-depth interviews with a lot of Latinos who are working in this industry. And so he's got a, pay, a recent paper in PRQ that's worth uh, checking out for the audience. 
Okay, Lauren, that's a really interesting hypothesis. So you're saying that people may not be as, uh, uh, Latino voters may not be as sensitive to the immigration issue because economically that is sort of the business that they work in. I, I hadn't heard that before. What do, you, what do you make of the other explanation that, you know, people who have migrated legally or have legal immigration today just aren't that sensitive to the, um, the migration problems of more recent generations and they just have different concerns that they care about? Right. Yeah, that, that's absolutely possible. I've heard anecdotal evidence of that. Um, I've recently did a, a 200, 300 MTurk sample, so it's not generalizable. But um, I noticed we had a measure in there of, in terms of it was all among Latinos. And it was uh, this uh, we had a measure of basically resentment towards undocumented immigrants. And that variable among Latino voters of resentment towards undocumented immigrants uh, was correlating quite strongly with basically punitive immigration attitudes and punitive immigration policy preferences. And then I have a piece coming out with uh, uh, Flavio Hickel Jr. and others looking at uh, Latino preference for uh, basically um, punitive immigration policy and voting for Republican candidates. And we find that this scale of uh, Latinx identity to American identity, so uh, Latinos who say, no, I have much stronger American identity than Latinx identity are much more likely to be backing these kind of punitive uh, public policy issues when it comes to immigration. And so you could easily see that transferring down to the voting behavior in, South, in places like South Texas. So do you make a lot of the sort of, I know it's a slight difference and you know, statistically it may be hard to tease out what the real difference is, but the difference it appears to be between uh, Latino men and Latina voters in terms of their support for the Trump campaign? I mean, there was this article in uh, the New York Times going in. Um, some, the, some of the listeners, I'm sure, who, who really pay attention to Latino vote will, will be familiar with this as a machismo argument, basically uh, um, making that case. Um, I don't really want to speculate on that particular for a variety of reasons, but um, what I would say is you see this across the board. You see this with the black vote. You see this with the white vote. You see this with the Latino vote. You probably see this with the, the indigenous or Native American vote. Um, men are just disproportionately drawn to being Republicans uh, regardless, right? So you're going to have, in this case, you would have a statistically significant effect just for gender, and that would hold across different subsets regardless of race. Well, let's talk about the black vote. I think a second narrative, narrative that's developing is sort of the, the fact that African-Americans have been slightly moving away from democratic support for a long time at the same time that I think we agree that black voters absolutely make up the, I think as Rachel Maddow said, the soul and the spine of the democratic party. But it does look like they had some losses among um, black voters in this election, particularly a little bit more among black men. So what do you make of that? Yeah, I was noticing that too. Um, you know, you have, uh, so again, going back to um, Laird and, uh, and White's article, uh, article, series of articles and books on, on the black uh, vote. So they've done a couple very fascinating studies really where um, they'll bring um, black students, uh, experimentally writes an experiment, they'll bring black students into a room and someone will maybe, uh, the, the treatment is, uh, someone says something about Obama right before you go in to the room and someone versus not saying something Obama, something like that. And then they go in and then they, they fill out a questionnaire. But one of the things is, you know, what's your Democratic Party? You know, what's your identification, your partisan identification? And they're showing that when, they're, when, the, when the respondents who get the treatment of, you know, referencing Obama and this kind of thing, um, that they're much more likely to say that they're going to be Democrat. 
And so I think like there's a, there's a, and there's also a conservative element among, um, you know, the black population, right? If you look at like ideology, uh, sometimes you'll see that uh, white liberals are more kind of basically liberal on a lot of things than say uh, our, our African-Americans. And so you can, can kind of see that interacting with what I was just saying earlier about black men, there's probably a sizable, somewhat conservative element among uh, black men. And, and at some point, they're going to start to peel off a little bit. Um, getting 90, 94% Democrat, you know, what we saw for Obama um, among African-Americans is, is just very hard to hold. Um, and so that's unrealistic for um, Democrats to be able to be getting 93, 94% vote uh, every single time among that, in that, among that community. Do you think having Kamala Harris on the ticket was a, a good, effective uh, mobilizing strategy for the Democrats? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, you look at these out, you look at these numbers and you see a bit of a, a, a bit of a spinoff. But at the same time, um, you do see uh, white voters shifting a little bit more Democrat. Right. So you, any any sort of offset you see among the minority population, you see a little bit of a gain in the white population. And so but having someone like Kamala Harris is uh, is effective in general. Right. You see uh, uh, you're going to get descriptive representation. And so I think that probably has helped in places like Georgia. Uh, where you see people having, you know, Joe Biden gave a lot of their Democratic, you know, African-American base, uh, you know, a symbolic reason beyond just voting out Trump to vote for them. And it helps with like mobilizing efforts. And so you can send her around and demographically target certain areas, right? It's very, very important to be able to kind of like, when you're going to different uh, neighborhoods and communities to, you know, to kind of uh, appeal culturally competently and, uh, and, and someone like, uh, Kamala Harris can do that to a variety of different organizations. There's a great article written by uh, Daniel Lemmy in Perspectives and Politics talking about um, basically multi-ethnic candidates. So it's worth checking out. Do you think the Democrats have a path forward or a strategy where they can appeal to both Black and Latino voters at the same time? Or is there always kind of a trade-off in the sense that these are communities that may be pretty solidly democratic, but they have very different lived experiences. They are treated differently by dominant culture in the United States. They obviously come from different places. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, it, it would require to really continue to mobilize them, different strategies in different states, sort of making different appeals. Yeah, abso absolutely. I think it's very important to um, any, any, any subpopulation in the United States, but particularly on race and ethnicity, where, um, you know, many people in these groups have experienced lots of, um, you know, racism and discrimination. Um, you know, identity is very um, powerful for a lot of people. And so um, if you are appealing and kind of trying to bunch people together, that's a, you know, that's a critical mistake. You have to appeal to what, what is actually happening in these people's lives and then make credible claims as to what you're going to do to improve those lives, basically. So let's talk about the white vote, because I think this is this is sort of the third narrative where this one to me just seems to be a little bit more contested. You have 70 million people that voted for Donald Trump in this idea that those are people that support white supremacy, that are racist or at least support a racist candidate. At the same time that it seems to be the swing in the white voter among non-college educated whites that actually offset the swing away for, or towards Biden that offset set the swing away from Biden from some African-Americans and Latinos, meaning Biden may have won this election with that swing of non-college educated white voters. Um, 
at the same time that we sort of see race as playing a key determinant in drawing support for Trump. So how do we understand white voters in this election and where they were, how they compare to 2016? Well, you know, you can't, um, you can't take sexism off the table, right, in terms of understanding why Hillary Clinton didn't do better among the American population. And so with, and it's, it's probably the case that, and I don't know this for sure, but it's probably the case that uh, whites with lower education levels are going to, at least in terms of public opinion data, going to exhibit higher measures of sexism. And so you kind of, to some degree, you're taking uh, with Joe Biden, you know, an old white guy, basically, and a, a sorry, a seasoned white guy. You're 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 taking some of some of the reason why some of these voters might have not voted for Clinton, but otherwise would have. You're taking that off, that specific aspect off the table, and that potentially could be uh, more appealing to you know lower educated uh, white voters. But I think the main issue is you're seeing a trend con con continuing with the 2018 uh, um, midterm where. Uh, suburban whites are starting to come back more to the Democratic Party because um, Trump's, Trump's uh, appeals on race are too extreme. So it sounds to me like the Obama, what we refer to as the Obama coalition kind of reemerged, which is energy among minority communities, as well as trying to appeal to white liberals, as well as white suburban, college educated, but still with a little bit of an eye to those people that pe you know, we refer to as Reagan Democrats, those white working class voters that the, a lot of Democrats think they've just kind of lost forever. Is that a good way to characterize what the Biden coalition was in 2020? It, yeah, I think it, that, that's, a, that's something to look into. Um, I haven't done the analysis yet on that. I mean, it, it's always good to, to kind of, we're, you know, we're at the hypothesized stage, right? And then we go in and put in all the variables and do experiments and um, get more detailed data, right? And, uh, we have a better, a more clear story emerges in two years. But, um, you know, that's, that's kind of Biden's strategy, right? You have, you have Black Lives Matter protests on, on the left and uh, calls to defund police and, and, and you know, the kind of uh, uh, AOC coalition, Bernie Sanders coalition, at least when it comes to these kind of, kind of left-wing uh, policies. And Biden really did position himself in the middle on that, right? And I think he, he's kind of... Uh, playing both sides on this issue and he will for sure get flack from the left wing as he proceeds but that may have um given that that took some of the uh, attack angle off of him from trump trump was saying oh um these people are controlling you not your bernie sanders and this like left wing hardcore socialist you, you know right you know what i mean and so that helped temper those attacks probably one of the ways, Lauren, that we typically, a lot of times, public opinion scholars uh, refer to an election is it's a referendum on the incumbent when there's an incumbent running, and there was an incumbent running in this election. Do you see that as true in this election? Was this really about uh, a thumbs up or down for Trump overall? And if so, along what dimensions were people deciding that they either like or don't like how he's done in office for the past four years? Yeah, this is definitely uh, a, a, ref, a referendum type um, type election. And um, so basically, when you look at the exit polls, you can see people who say like, uh, you know, the, the coronavirus scenario, people who say that you, the coronavirus is the most important issue are voting strongly for uh, for for Biden. And so really, most proximately that and issues concerning racial justice uh, that had increased right over the last couple of years, just given everything that Trump had done and said on those issues. And so you have these two kind of paired um, dimensions of vote choice on issues that seem to be really uh, driving why people are moving away from Trump. I mean, I would think that 
even though the polling data may not have said this, if there wasn't the coronavirus, I wouldn't be surprised if if Trump would have would have won. We're talking a handful of votes in you know six or seven states. Well, help me understand something because voters who said the economy was the most important issue in the exit poll, which I think was like the plurality response, it was like around Still a high. third of respondents. Trump won them overwhelmingly, yet we've gone through this economic disaster since COVID. So help me understand how people were understanding that question and why people who thought that was the most important issue wanted to support Trump. There's a, there's a huge literature on economic voting in the United States. And in general, what that has increasingly told us is that um, when you evaluate the economy as a, as a member of the general public, you put your partisan glasses on. And if you're a member, uh, if, you're, if the president is Democrat and you're Democrat, you're going to say, oh, no, the economy is OK, regardless of the actual facts. And you're going to vote for and you're, and you're going to say that's an important issue. And you're going to vote for it. And that seems to be the same thing uh, here as well for Republicans. In addition to the way that the election was playing out is Trump was basically saying coronavirus is bad, but we got to keep the economy going. Um, and by the way, before this all happened, the economy was great. So you can see with a little bit of motivated reasoning, Republican voters would have said, yeah, the economy is pretty good. I'm voting for Trump. Well, it's also, it's, it seems a little bit different to me than the economic crisis in 2008, 2009, which hit, which hit voters at all levels of income, perhaps in slightly different ways, but at least it hit, you know, wealthier upper income voters in terms of the housing crisis. But this economic crisis seems to have hit very segmented parts of the population in particular. I mean, obviously nobody likes what's happening, but it seems to be um, a lot more focused in terms of the worst effects of who's been hurt by the economic downturn as opposed to those who have sort of not been that affected by it. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm not sure if that was a question or uh, just- No, it's just a comment. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah. it, it was just like 2008, 2009, everybody was hit at some level. And now yeah. I think a lot of people have, I mean, I think when it's that question of, are you better off now than you were four years ago? A, lot, a majority of Americans said yes. And I think that's actually true because the people that lost their jobs in the last nine months are not 55% of Americans. You know, it's- yeah, I mean, what, 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 I would, what I would think about that maybe um, uh, higher income Republican voters are like, I didn't lose any money. In fact, I didn't spend any money for the last six months. So I'm actually doing okay. Yeah. Uh, and so, and then they vote, whereas, but, but then you still have the situation where you have lots of rural uh, lower socioeconomic status voters, white voters who are voting trending strongly Republican may have lost their jobs, but are now still saying the economy is doing great. I'm, you know what I mean? And so uh, th th that has to be unpacked further. And I, you know, that's about what I can say on that right now. So what about the different age groups um, where Democrats are always waiting for young people to turn out? Republicans always want older people to turn out. It seems like actually Biden may have won uh, the boomers and it was Gen Xers that swung it to Trump. But how do you understand the different age categories in this election and how they voted? I mean, looking at the exit polls, you basically see the only like if I were to do, say, like a, a chi-square or some sort of t-test among uh, splits, it, maybe there's there's not really huge statistically significant differences between the different splits, except for the younger, you know, under age 30 that are still going, you know, 60, 35, 60, 40, whatever uh, for the Democrat. So, I, I, you know, I guess my main takeaway is, is older voters are not as um, overwhelmingly favorable for the Republican candidate, as I would think. Older voters tend to exhibit extremely conservative attitudes on average, uh, especially on social issues, you, you take LGBTQI type issues, uh, race issues, a lot of the things that we've seen battles on in the last five to 10 years 
older voters are on the losing side of those issues when it comes to you know the the, the long view. Uh, but that's not translated over into votes. And what I would speculate here is they're also the people that are most uh, on edge with coronavirus, right? And uh, if they get it, they have a much higher probability of dying than anyone else. And so they might have seen Donald Trump's uh, effective bungling of that and say, I, I got to put partisanship to the side. So you might actually have some rationality going on in terms of the older vote there. Do, you, do, you, do we know if younger people turned out as a higher proportion in this election yet than where they have previously? I haven't looked at that. So uh, I haven't and I haven't seen any, you know, I scour Twitter pretty hard. Um, I'd have to look a little bit more closely. I don't actually know that. But um, while we're talking, I can go and kind of pull it up and get a sense on that. Well, one thing I, I, I was talking to some college students at University of Washington yesterday about this, and they, they were asking me what I thought young voters cared about. And I, I threw the question back to them. And I said, I think one of the things that young voters care about that may not be obvious is, is one, the way in which young people have been affected by the virus in ways that we may forget. So even though older voters, their health is, is at risk, students in college have had their entire lives upended by this or people who know people in college, as well as then this is the age group for which the economic downturn is going to be uh, the most salient and the most problematic. But I said, I also wonder if younger voters just have longer time horizons and they're able to focus on issues like the environment or racial justice that are just going to take longer to tackle as issues in terms of policy, because they're, you know, they're younger, they have hope and, and, and people, once they get to middle age or older, they, they just get more cynical about things like that. And they care about things that are more immediate and present. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, unfortunately, the 2016 uh, um, election exit poll I was looking at, I didn't have the share of uh, people below the age of 30, but the one thing to keep in mind about age, right, is, you know, you're looking at the exit polls and you have to, oh, and you, you, you know, you, you might pop up an image of some person in your mind. And that's probably uh, potentially biased based on uh, who you are, right, uh, as the analyst. And so the thing to keep in mind with younger voters is a very diverse population, right? It, it, it may be major, majority uh, and at least plurality uh, minority, right? And so um, these are people that are going to care a lot more about things like uh, racial justice, right? When we look at, uh, you know, just these aspects by race. And part of the issue here is that um, Biden is not the most strong Democratic candidate on these issues. And so they may not, you know, be as excited to vote for a candidate like that, as you might see someone like a, an AOC type, if, if, you know, she probably one day will run, and then you might see that kind of activation. So, um, but I think the point on uh, long-term horizon things is, is, is very, you know, well taken and, and is, is theoretically very important to think about. So the Biden-Harris administration is going to inherit a number of really, really important pressing public policy issues. I mean, quite honestly, you ask yourself, who really wants this job at this point? Yes, but they, right, they, right. they asked for it. They got it. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. <clears throat> How do you see, in your expertise in American politics, how do you see their policy agenda unfolding? And what do you think are the big challenges they need to tackle? And how do you think that they'll proceed with that agenda? Well, as you can already kind of see, people are starting to, you know, there's, you re, now we're reading articles about who's going to be nominated for this cabinet position and that cabinet position. And so uh, one thing that we should expect is to see a very diverse cabinet a very diverse head of government, right? Um, and that, that's going to send at least symbolically uh, cues to the Democratic coalition. It's very important to do that. And then also, um, they're going to try to get this, obviously, this coronavirus thing is the number one, uh, for sure, the number one focus. Uh, 
uh, for the, the incoming president. Luck, luckily for him, uh, what is it just yesterday, or the day before there was, um, uh, was it a Pfizer, uh, is a Pfizer study, like 90% effective yeah. or something, this vaccine. And so there, I would imagine the first half year or year, they're going to be all hands on deck when it comes to uh, something like that. And then you'll see basically a bunch of um, executive orders on environment, um, immigration, right? That's a very important one in terms of child detention. There are still um, lots of people, uh, little children separated from their parents. The government hasn't found those. And so they're going to probably push for um, those kinds of things. Can I express a fear to you and have you tell me why you either think it's right or wrong? Okay. <clears throat> on, on the vaccine rollout, I fear that uptake of the vaccine will become deeply political like mask wearing has. And in a way, this is strange because if you think about you know, sort of anti-vaxxers in American life right now, there are people on the left and who are hardcore Democrats who are anti-vaxxers. It doesn't seem to me to be completely partisan. Maybe there's a, a little bit of a, a partisan preference on one side or the other, but I could see very much the rollout of this vaccine happening under a Biden-Harris administration, leading a lot of people to refuse to get the vaccine um, I'm, I'm not saying all Republicans, I, I don't think it would be, but I think, and it may be some people on the left who are anti-vaxxers anyway, but my fear is that the, the take up of the vaccine becomes deeply political. Do you, that's just my hunch. Is there any evidence of that? Is that a worry? Should I not be worried? Um, you should probably be uh, cautiously worried, I guess, like not hardcore, but somewhere, you know, to the right of center. And um, re the reason I say that is because from a political science angle, Dan Hopkins wrote this piece in maybe 2010. And uh, I have a piece in the BJPS with Ben Newman and a bunch of UCR colleagues, UC Riverside colleagues, looking at what we call the Trump effect. And it's this basically idea when you have a leader who is out there basically, you know, in the case of Trump driving these like racial issues, um, that then gets prolifer pro proliferated through uh, society and through that, that core base of his vote. And they begin to believe these things. You can see the same thing with voter fraud, right? If Trump wasn't out there saying there's voter fraud, his base wouldn't be out there saying it's voter fraud. And so Trump will probably be on Fox News or who knows, maybe he'll start his own uh, channel, right? His own media empire. But now we have Biden in office and Biden's not gonna be saying, don't do this. And it's just not, it's, it's, the count it's a counter Right. There's the logical counter, but I don't the, the research doesn't show that there's the backlash effect so much as there is when an op, a president's in office and what they're saying is having okay. this impact. So do you have any thoughts on where new stimulus legislation might come in? I mean, allegedly it was the, the, the most recent package was held up because Trump didn't want to give any what he calls bailouts to states at the state level. Do you think that will be back on the table um, and, you know, will there be movement before these two races in Georgia are decided or will they wait or what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, that's a great. I, I, I can't speculate. I'm not a legislative scholar. I've written a couple of papers on uh, different, you know, you know, um, congressional voting and co-sponsorship and stuff. But that was one thing I neglected to say. It does seem like we've been seeing some news on this, that uh, there will be uh, some sort of, um, you know, stimulus. Um, I don't know if it's going to come now or it's going to come when Biden gets in. I think both sides have, there, there's a reason both, both parties have like, you know, small businesses are hurting. And so they, you know, Democrats maybe give on that and then, uh, unemployed people who the Democrats are going for, maybe Republicans give on that. So there's a good old school, uh, compromise here in the making that could benefit all, both parties, I think. Okay. And, what do you think is going to happen with the Republican Party with 
Trump. I mean, people are sort of trying to figure out, okay, is this off-ramp talk right now about Republicans positioning themselves um, in certain ways, but what, what do you see in the next two to four years about the party either saying a party of Trump, if he's tweeting from the sidelines, or do you see movement towards reforming or changing or, or kind of doing a diagnosis on why they lost and then trying to uh, overcome that next time? You know, after the 2012 uh, election defeat, Rice, was it Rice Priebus, Rent Priebus, the, uh, the chair of the RNC, basically they came out, and you're probably familiar with this, there, there was a Okay, let's uh, let's stop being so harsh on uh, on on immigration. Let's kind of take a more progressive stance on that. Let's come around. We need to start uh, broad from a racial standpoint. And uh, basically, Trump went in and said, you know, screw all that. And so I think there is there is the core of there, there's there's an element, maybe twenty percent of the Republican Party that probably you know this is just a guess, but wants to see that kind of thing. But as the as the voting base has become more rural and white that's going to be a hard um that's going to be hard for the party to follow through with that because you will probably see in in, in primary elections uh, some sort of tea party revolt type thing and so people campaigning to the right are going to be winning those seats and so right now i would have to say there's probably going to be a continued polarization uh in part because trump at least had showed that he could win on that right-leaning uh message when it came to identity so Thinking big picture, like in two or four or 40 years, um, what do you think? I mean, at this point, we're sort of looking at all these data and these different groups and states and, and Trump effect and incumbent and Biden and all the rest of it. But kind of big picture, what do you think is going to be the narrative that explains this election longer term in terms of why we got the result that we got and what it says about um, American public opinion? There's probably going to be some ups and downs, just like the coronavirus um, for the next 10 or, or, or 15 years, but just, you know, by 2050, uh, 2050, 2045 or so, the U.S. is a majority minority country. And that doesn't mean that the voting base will be that way, but it will start to look like California today or increasingly like Texas, which is a battleground. And so um, if Republicans don't start to begin making moves on some of these identity-based policies and, and, and just also just, frankly, the way they talk about the issue, and you know, go back to more bread and butter kind of economics. They could it, basically the only avenue for their success is you know in the Senate where you have this kind of uh, undemocratic kind of you know lean. And it seems very challenging for a Republican to ever win um, the presidency again based on these kinds of messages if a place like Texas flips. So. I'm hoping that the Republican Party, you know, kind of ditches these racial appeals, these kind of potentially racist appeals and moves more um, on, on economics and that will kind of balance the system out. But this is like a, this election and the last election is, pro, is hopefully an aberration to American politics, not aberration to what the American population thinks so much. There's, you know, just given our history, but the Republican Party for the last 20, 30, 40 years has been able to tamp down those negative elements. And so we'll see if they can do that again. Well, let me push back on one part of that, which is how successful have the Democrats actually been on economic appeals? I mean, if you, you know, I'm a political scientist. If you ask me a, a, anything about Biden's economic policy from the campaign, I couldn't tell you. Like are, are Democrats really crafting their message and a way that is around the economy and that's helping them win? Or are they also making identity appeals? 
Absolutely, they're making identity appeals, but they, all they have to say is Trump bungled the coronavirus and just next, you know, and that in itself is the reason why the economy took a dive was because this person didn't take science seriously um, and didn't, I mean, we all saw it coming and certain countries made decisions. We could have made those decisions, but, you know, this president didn't want to do that. And so I wouldn't necessarily say the democratic economic appeals are particularly that relevant in this case, and the data kind of bear that out, right? Um, uh-huh. in terms of uh, economic voting, in terms of importance. So how do you see them crafting then their message moving forward, particularly, I mean, Bi- Biden will have to do kind of the Band-Aid approach, but if they, I mean, even if Harris runs in four years, they're going to have to sort of sort of come up with a prospective set of economic policies that make sense that aren't just responding to a crisis. What do you think that looks like for the Democrats? Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of a, it, it's a, it's a tempered version, right? I think it's like, uh, we need to invest in the youth. We need to invest in education. Uh, college is basically a requirement nowadays to make a middle income. And so that should be free effectively or highly discounted. We need to get a handle on student debt. Uh, those are all in. So this is the, the, the hope kind of message that is that often comes along for the Democratic Party. And then a redistributionist tone such that people making over $400,000 a year. I think it used to be 250, but now it's 400. Um, people yeah. making over $400,000 a year are going to get taxed at higher levels because we need to get a handle on this massive inequality, a system that works for 10 or 20% of people and then is like squeezing everyone else. And I think that's the kind of core part of the democratic message and uh, with a side bend of, uh, you know, universal healthcare. Um, and we have to thank Bernie Sanders for a lot of this. Right. And Elizabeth Warren, we have to think the the kind of left wing of the Democratic base. And this is now normal talk. Great. Well, Lauren, do you have any uh, closing thoughts? No, I'm good. I'm getting ready to get my uh, my class going uh, later today, my grad class. So uh, I'll have them uh, listen to this. And thanks for having me on. I I really enjoy the podcast you've been uh, running. I know it's a lot of work um, and it's it's good to see political scientists engaging in real, uh, you know, real politics. Thanks a lot. Well, Lauren Collingwood, I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for coming on. All right. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.